Today we're going to be in our second week in the book of Acts. We are going to actually finish up chapter 1. Rather than tell you a story at the front, I'll give you a couple in the, in the middle. But if you'll remember last week, we talked about why we're here as Christians. We looked, about, we looked at the assignment that God gave us, and we talked about how the issue wasn't can we fulfill our calling as Christians, but rather will we. This week, we're going to talk about what we need to be about as we do our jobs or fulfill our calling. And we're also going to talk about what God is always about as we uh, fulfill our callings. What we're going to do today is really highlight some key truths that we're going to see expanded upon as we go through the book of Acts. So it's going to be a, a stage-setting weekend. Let me read the text to you, and then we'll unpack it. But before we do, let's pray. Father, I pray as we go into your word today that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your truth. I pray you would uh, speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would quiet my mind and allow me to uh, be used by you and allow all of us to come to know you more fully through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And it reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Aren't you so glad that's recorded there? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. As I was looking at this text, I saw uh, two main parts. I saw the part that had to do with the disciples, and the part that had to do with God. So let's start with the disciples. It says here, Then they returned to Jerusalem. They, obviously, are being the guys who were with Jesus at his ascension. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. You know what a Sabbath day journey is away? Interesting little side note. It's 3,000 feet. You know where the term uh, Sabbath day's journey comes from? Back in tabernacle days, they had the camp set up according to how God told them to, right? The furthest part of the camp was 3,000, roughly 3,000 feet away. They do the measurements in cubits. And on the Sabbath, when they come to the tent of meeting, they would journey that far 
to worship. So they determined based off Jewish law and tradition that a Sabbath day journey, as far as a person should travel on the Sabbath, was a distance from the furthest point of the camp towards where the tent of meeting was. That's why they call it a Sabbath day journey, roughly 3,000 feet. So these guys walk about 3,000 feet, 15 minutes or so, and they enter, and when they entered, they went up to the upper room. You want another interesting little irrelevant uh, side note? Why are these guys always hanging out in the upper room? What's wrong with the first floor? The way homes were built back then, a little different than today, the upper room, the, the lower floor carried all the supporting beams. So they were smaller compartmentalized rooms. Upstairs was generally a wide open room. It's where they put dead people so that they could have people come and pay their respects at the funeral in a large open area. And it's where people in large numbers gathered. That's why groups tend to go to upper rooms. Now that you have those two truths, let's pray, and I'm sure you are walking much more closely with God, knowing how far you can walk on the Sabbath and where you go when you die as a Jew. Good? Or should we keep going? So these guys come back, short walk, they go up to the upper room, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Let's, let's stop there. I want to back you up to verse 12, the third word for my first point. Then they returned. Returned. Jesus told these folks in 1-4 not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. You remember that? So what did they do after he left? Exactly what he said. They returned and they waited. Now, we read that and we're like, whoop-de-doo. Jesus said, do it. They did it. The Holy Spirit's coming. It's not a big deal. But put yourself in the shoes of these guys. Think about all that had been going on in the past few months with them. Think about the view people had of followers of Christ in this area. The powers that be had him killed. And they're going to hang out in this area. They were given an assignment to go out to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. They're entrusted with a mess- the message of salvation. So they have to go and bring it out, right? And Jesus says, go and wait. So go and wait where someone might kill you. Go and wait despite being charged with making disciples of all nations. Go and wait and sit and just hang out until I tell you it's time to go. You understand how that seems crazy or is it just me? You have the assignment of of going out and proclaiming the good news of salvation to all the ends of the earth, but don't go anywhere yet. And I'll be back at any time, but don't go anywhere yet. I want you to go hang out in Jerusalem. Remember those people who killed me? Yeah, they're still there. Go hang out with them. Just waiting. And I'll let you know when it's time to go at some future point yet to be determined. But I'll be back soon. Do you see the craziness of that? It doesn't make sense. See, these guys should have gone from where Jesus ascended and ran out and started telling as many people and starting a recruiting program to get as many people at it to get everything they could do to make it happen to spread this message. No? But Jesus said, go and wait. And to go and wait in a risky way because might they also be killed or imprisoned or something? Didn't they need to save themselves so they could do what God called them to? What if, what if they went to jail or what if they got killed? How would they get the message out? But they weren't worried about that. You'll see why as we get to the God part. But notice that they obey, even when it sounded crazy. Might I ask a question? How well do we do with obedience based on faith when it seems that it won't work out so well if we obey? Now, if Jesus said, here are the winning Powerball numbers, go and play them by faith. Like, oh yeah, man. You go, you you get your numbers, you get the ticket, and you're like, I'm gonna win. There's very little downside. If you don't win, you just... As a side note, I don't assume Jesus will be revealing winning Powerball numbers to anybody, but that's 
there's no risk if you lose. You're kind of in the same spot, and there's a whole bunch of upside. That's called easy faith. It's called weak faith. But when you're laying it all on the line, when your life's in jeopardy, when you think things are going to go bad, how hard is it to walk in obedience to Christ? Doesn't it get a little tricky? But is it really risky? Isn't it interesting, and this goes to this question here, why does God call us to obey? Isn't it interesting that God, who knows all, doesn't reveal all to us? Isn't it interesting that God will tell us to do what appears to be scary things without us knowing the end result, even though he knows the end result? Isn't it interesting we're called to live these lives, which God already knows the ends of from the beginning, but yet he doesn't reveal to us the whole thing. And you know why that is? Because he wants us to walk by faith. These guys were beginning to have to walk by faith because that's what disciples are about. Now, the serious question here, why does God call us to obey? Is it because he's a mean father who says, I make the rules and you will obey my rules, darn it, or you will go to hell? So he gives us a list of rules and we need to pretend we're happy about them. I'm so happy I can't do anything I want. And we just have to smile as we go through life pretending we love it. Is that God's plan? And then go make other people obey these horrible rules and tell them they too have to pretend they like it so they can trick other people to make it seem better than it is. And then one day you die and God's like, fine, you did good enough, come on in. Is that why he gives us his commandments to obey? I think a lot of people live that way, don't they? Oh, I love Jesus. It's so joyful being a Christian. Well, there's supposed to be incredible joy in obedience, isn't there? You do understand that God gives us commandments not to burden us. That's what John says. His commandments are not burdensome. He gives them to us so we can have the joy he desires for us to have. I don't tell my two-year-old, don't touch the grill, to be a jerk. I tell him, don't touch the grill, because it's really going to hurt. And I don't want him to get hurt. Well, God tells us what to do and what to not do because He made us and He knows what we were made for and He knows what's best for us. And then we walk by faith having to say either, Alright, Heavenly Father, even though I don't understand how this is for my best, I will trust You and You will always see at some point how it was for Your best. Or You will say, God, eh, I don't think You know what You're talking about. I'm going to touch the proverbial grill. And for a bit of time, it might actually feel good on Your hand, but it will burn You very badly at some point. You understand, this obedience we're called to is not a joyless obedience to a wicked father. This is a joyful obedience knowing who it is that calls us to it. Jesus said, go and wait. These guys had spent three years with him. They knew, he knew what he was talking about. So if he said wait, even though they couldn't understand it, they would go and wait. The same thing must be true of us if we're going to fulfill the calling God put on us. No matter how crazy it looks, when we know what God calls us to, we must do it. Obedience. You know what comes next? Prayer. These folks gathered together with additional men and women and they prayed. So if you were one of the eleven and you make it back to the upper room, don't you break out a whiteboard? Don't you start strategizing? How are we going to get this to the ends of the earth? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. How do we do it? Who's going where? Who wants to go with who? How are we going to make this happen? Who's going to come with us? What do we need? What type of brochures do we need? We've got to get some books. We've got to get some flowers. We need a plane up there. Woo! You start getting crazy. That's how Americans approach problems. But what were these guys and gals about? They were praying. We don't have, we don't have time to pray, right? I mean, who here, honestly, can we, be, can we be honest with each other? Who's too busy to pray? Don't lie to me. 
Who's too busy to pray? How many people here give, give an extended period of time daily to prayer? Or how many of you wing it on the way to work? You know? God, dang, get this person out of my way. Help me have a good day. I love you. Uh, amen. Yeah, and make stuff happen. And you, just, you don't even know what you're praying. You're just like, I checked, did that. Why don't we have a robust prayer life? Why do we think we're so busy? Might I ask another question? Did Jesus pray? I, I vaguely recollect he did a couple times. But he wasn't busy, right? He wasn't up to a bunch. He was just lounging out with his disciples, walking in the wilderness. Dude was busy, wasn't he? He wasn't hurried. He was busy. Why did he make time to pray? Why don't we make time to pray? Why did these guys make time to pray? Matthew 21, 13. You remember that cleansing of the temple? Remember when Jesus went all, went all whip wild? He says, my father's house is to be a house of... Yeah, what is he talking about there? How much time do we dedicate as we gather together to worship to prayer. How, how, how robust is the turnout for corporate prayer? See, Renee and I are like, yeah, y'all, we, please, we got work to do too. Why do we relegate prayer to a side issue? You want to know why? I think. Why I do? Because we really don't think it works. We get crazy theology in our heads. God already knows what he's going to do. My prayers are relevant. You know, so if I tell God to do this or to not do this or ask him for this, it, it really doesn't matter. What's going to be is going to be, you know? So, like, God, will you please help my kids come to know you? Will you open their eyes to the truth? But he already knows if they're going to be believers or not when they grow up. So, really, does my prayer matter? See how I'm getting crazy theology going in my head? Oh, he knows, but he also knows my faithfulness to prayer. We're to pray like little children, right? Little kids don't look at the intricacies and the economy of how things work at a level beyond which they can comprehend. We pray because God calls us to pray. Prayer is effective because God tells us it's effective. How does it work? I have no stinking idea. Nor do you, nor can we ever. But we pray because we need to realize that apart from God, we can do nothing. We are utterly and completely helpless apart from God. And if we are not praying, we are not being used as powerfully as God desires for us to be. If we're not praying, we're assuming our time, talent, and treasure are all we need to get done what God calls us to. Based off of my incredible good looks, my phenomenal oratory skills, I am able to make all of you love Jesus. Don't laugh. Just doesn't work that way, does it? I, and it's not because I am not phenomenally good looking or, or impressive oratorically. Just be quiet. We often assume that we could get done the work of God without God being involved. We're, we can, we're functional deists. You know what a deist is? Someone who believes God wound up the universe push it off to the side and then steps back and then you go ahead and run with it. Jesus says throughout the Gospels, look at John 5.19 or John 8.28. He, he's talking about his utter and complete reliance on the Father. I can do nothing apart from my Father. Well, if Jesus could do nothing apart from his Father, so he was constantly before him in prayer, why do we think that we can? These guys knew and gals, the single most important thing that they needed to be doing as they walked in obedience was praying. Now you might be thinking, okay, how long do you have to pray a day? That's not the issue. The issue is we need to be in prayer with God. What we consider important, we will make time for. We need to be a people of prayer. As we go through the book of Acts, we will unpack this more and more. But the more fully we understand how helpless we are apart from God, the more fully we will come before God daily in prayer. Okay? 
So we got the obedience, we got the prayer, and then we have the easy to miss one here. You see the word they as you go through this text? I see uh, starting in verse 12, they returned, they entered, they went where they were staying, devoting themselves to prayer together. It's a lot of they, 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 they. You know what we call that? Fellowship. That term that drove me crazy for so many years. That, that term that I thought was a Christianese version of hanging out. Because before I came to faith, I hear people use the term fellowship. Oh, we're having fellowship. Well, we're having a barbecue over here and it looks the same and it's a lot more fun over here. So why don't you come hang out? Well, I understand the difference between hanging out and fellowship. And these folks certainly did. We're called to live in communion with, one, with other believers. Yes, our salvation is determined upon our individual profession of faith, but once we come to faith, we're called to live together. Now, here's a story for you. And it's funny, I share this story in the day that half the church has gone away. So, Listen closely if you're listening. There was a pastor who stopped by a guy's house who was on the rolls at his church, but hadn't been there in many, many, many years. And the guy knew he was coming, so they were having a barbecue. He fired up the grill, they were going to have some barbecue, and... After some small talk, the pastor says to the man, Where have you been? I haven't seen you in a long time. He says, Pastor, I don't need that organized religion. I, I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and I have my Bible, and I worship God at home, and I'm just fine. I don't need all that stuff. pastor said, Okay. And he stood up, and he took a, a tongue. And he went over to the barbecue, and he took a, a charcoal, white-hot coal, and put it down on the, the flagstone next to them was white, was hot as could be. And as they continued to talk, do you know what happened to that piece of charcoal? It cooled off. To the point that within a few minutes, the pastor reached down and picked it up and put it on the table. He says, friend, you see this piece of charcoal? It was in that pile that is still smoldering hot. But when I removed it from the pile, it so quickly cooled off. Now, as a chief amongst all sinners who used to try to run the independent version of Christianity. Do you know what happens when we try to go all solo? Hebrews, do not, do not neglect to meet together regularly as some of you have become accustomed to doing. We become a cooled off piece of coal. We're called to gather together in true corporate fellowship. Not to hang out, but to keep the heat up. We're called to do that as the Holy Spirit works through us to encourage, edify, equip, correct, God forbid, one another. So that we can have that white hot passion, love for Christ, uh, being full of the Holy Spirit. And quite frankly, you cannot do it on your own. Now you may think you're the exception to the rule and you'll be the first and only person in all of church history who can do this. It doesn't work. Trust me, I tried. I load it with intellectual fact even, intellectual knowledge. You try to go off on your own, you start to cool off quickly and not be used very well. We are to be a pile of white hot embers burning as a burnt offering to God, can we say? These guys and gals knew it. They were together. As we go through the book of Acts, watch what a life together was. It wasn't isolate yourself in a Christian enclave. This wasn't, don't interact with the world, hang out with each other, and it'll make life easier. This was, get yourself burning hot, and then get out, and then get back together regularly before the heat wears off. You're to be my witnesses in the world, is what Jesus said, but we're not going to be a great witness if we don't have the heat about us, do we? 
We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Watch how this unfolds as we go through the book of Acts. See, the fellowship, living in the world and the witness that it was. You know when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you by this, the world will know of my love for them. Do you know who he was talking to primarily about that love one another? In the context of his church. We need to be about fellowship. We need to be about prayer. We need to be about obedience if we're going to be about the work we've been called to. Now, watch this. We're going to have a heavy transition. So what's God about? What's God up to? We get to this this seemingly awkward transition where we have Peter steps up and he says, somewhere in here, stood up, verse 15, among the brothers, a company was about 120, and he starts talking about Judas dying and Matthias taking his place and the guts pouring out and and what what's going on? Why does God take us from the ascension to the gathering together in obedience and prayer and fellowship right before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and give us this little this little uh, oratory section from Peter about Judas's nasty death and Matthias coming in? Here's what I think is going on. He wants us to know what he is about. This is a truth that you know in the back of your head somewhere, but as you understand it more fully, life changes. God wanted to remind them and us that he is always in control past, present, and future. Judas. We don't like Judas very much, do we? Judas betrayed Jesus for the price of a slave. He betrayed him. He gave him that wicked kiss, and they killed Jesus. Judas never believed. Judas went to hell. It's verse down, verse 25, it says, uh, to replace Judas, from which Judas who turned aside to go to his own place. His own place was an eternity separated from God. Isn't that an interesting little side note? We all determine our own place. Is it an eternity with God or eternity separated from God? So Judas betrayed Jesus. And imagine if you're one of these guys. You hang out with Judas for three years, and he walked the walk, and he talked the talk, and he looked like a real honest-to-goodness disciple. Okay? He, he tricked all of them except Jesus. And then he betrayed them. And these guys watch their rabbi, who they, who they were so sure was the Messiah, be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, killed, and put in a tomb. You want to talk about out of control. How would you feel if you were there watching all this go down? Oh my word. What I, what I thought was true doesn't seem to be true. This guy, they, they were sure this was the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't get killed. Certainly not on a tree, right? And then they bury him. It's out of control. God, what happened? And for three days, they, they, they had no idea. Their eyes hadn't been fully opened to the scriptures. But was it ever out of control? Did Jesus know Judas would betray him? The Bible tells us he does. The Father knew that Judas would betray Jesus before he even created Adam and Eve. Stop and think about that. Before Judas was, was a con- before Judas's great 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 grandfather was even a concept, God knew Judas would betray Jesus. Do you ever stop and think about all the intricacies that need to happen exactly to allow for someone named Judas to be born? You know, stop and look at your life. Okay? Think of all... I married Laura. Think of all the little things that could have changed just a speck. So neither one of us would have been born. Little example, my grandmother was engaged to Beth to be married, and the guy she was engaged to died at Pearl Harbor. 
Well, the Japanese never attacked Pearl Harbor, I would have never been born. So, I celebrate Pearl Harbor Day differently than you. Do you think God had Pearl Harbor Day come because he's like, oh, I need someone to pastor God's Grace Bible Church? No. What I'm saying is the intricacies with which God works are beyond your comprehension. He is so intimately involved in everything, there are no coincidences, and he knew what Judas would do. He didn't fatalistically determine that Judas had to do this. Understand that. It wasn't like Judas said, I just want to love God, and God's like, sorry, you're going to hell. But God, I want to serve you. No, you may not. Judas wasn't fatalistically determined to do what he did. He chose to do what he did. But God, in his sovereign control, knew what Judas would do, and and it was part of his redemptive plan. That's crazy, isn't it? There was never out of control. It had to happen just like it did, because that's what God determined. Even that, he had Matthias ready to replace him. Isn't that crazy too? He knew what Judas would do, but he had a replacement ready. Do you see what I'm, where I'm going here? Do you see how everything is completely in God's control? Romans 8.28, you know how he does it? God uses all things for the good of those who love him because God's in control of everything, and he can't. Now, do you ever feel like things are a little out of control in life? Yeah, you ever, uh, you ever see that bill coming in and you wonder how you're going to pay it? You ever see a kid not acting quite the way you would hope and wonder what you're going to do about it? You ever see a family situation or... or Whatever starts to look out of control. Is it? Is it possible to be out of control? Or is a perfectly good and loving Heavenly Father in control of it all, orchestrating it for the greater good? I don't know. You tell me. But these guys, 10 of these 11 would die for their faith. Was it out of control? Oh, it wasn't out of control. These guys would be betrayed. They'd be beaten, crucified killed. They they faced incredible hardships. Did they ever think it was out of control? No! Because they knew God. They walked in obedience. They lived in fellowship. They were in constant prayer. And they knew that God was always in complete control. So, how does Paul go through life saying, you know, for me, to die is gain? Because he knew who Christ was. And he knew the temporary problems of this world paled in comparison to the glories that he would have with Christ Jesus. Because he knew God was always and completely and perfectly in control, and that has never changed. So when you freak out because things seem crazy, take a deep breath. Make sure you're walking in obedience. Make sure you are praying regularly. Make sure you're living in fellowship. And allow us to encourage one another and remind one another of the truth of all eternity that God is perfectly in control of everything and no matter what is going on, no matter what it may look like from your perspective, He will never leave you nor forsake you and He will take perfect care of you as you walk in obedience to Him. Now, is that the greatest comfort you can have? So when you wake up in the morning and you get a phone call and there's horrible news, it's okay to be sad, but don't grieve like the world grieves because we know who's in control. It's often easier to believe that when stuff goes good, But be careful not to forget it then. Make sure to understand who gives us every good thing, who entrusts everything to us as we rejoice in the joys of this life. Thank God for it. Understand that He gave it to us. But don't forget it with the hard stuff. And it starts young. You're in school. You fail a test. Did you do your best? It's okay. Everything's not going to fall apart. Now, Now, if you decided to sleep in and put in no effort, we're talking about a different ball of wax here. 
as you get older and, and your friends aren't really your friends and they try to lead you astray, it's okay. God's in control. You walk in obedience to Him. But God, I'm not going to fit in. It's okay. I don't want you to fit in. I want something far better than that for you. You go into adulthood and the whole world is pursuing the American dream in ways where which they're serving everything but God. Trust God that He knows what's better. He's in control. Then you get old and you get into the winter of life and you start to look back at all the stuff you've done and realize there's more back than forward and it's okay to rejoice because you know where you're going. This is not heaven. Heaven is to live in the presence of God and to see Him for who He is unfazed by sin. And folks, when we get there, there's going to be a whole lot of, oh man, why was I so concerned about that? Why was I so freaked out? Why was I so scared? Oh God, if I could only have known now what I didn't know then. You can know it now. You just have to walk by faith. And we can do that through grace. We have to walk in faith in the way God calls us to. But these guys didn't freak out because they knew the truth that God was always in control. We need to believe that truth which we know in our heads. And when we look at the craziness of life, take a deep breath. Now what kills me is I can tell you this on an intellectual level real easy. Practically, it gets a little harder, doesn't it? When it affects you directly, it gets it's easy to counsel somebody, isn't it? But when you're the one going through the struggle, well folks, that's what we're to be in the world. The ones who, as we go through struggles, fall before God in prayer because on our own we can't do it and say, Father, help me trust you. Help me believe that you are in control. Help me to, to focus on you and believe in you and worship only you and understand that I will have the great greater joy and the abundant life as I do and trust him and watch how he does and the world's watching you too and you start living for God's glory. Okay? Now, I wasn't going to touch this, but I'm going to bring up two side issues. And I'm doing it now, and if you're annoyed or disagree, speak up. There are two biblical truths in this section I just want to comment on for you to understand as we live in the context of our world. Okay? They may seem irrelevant, they're not. You'll come across them at some point. The first one is an apostle. There are some people today who claim to be apostles. If you watch, uh, what, what's the, uh, the Bible channel on TV with the televangelists? You know what I'm talking about? TBM. By the way, if you'd like to donate money for your prayer cloth and send it forward right now, I'm okay with that. On that channel, I see apostles all the time. Are there apostles today? You asked me that question once, didn't you? Are there apostles today? What do you do if someone claims to be an apostle? Can I be blunt? Know that they're lying to you? Do the requirements for being an apostle? They're right in here is why I'm bringing this up. With Jesus from the beginning, a witness of his resurrection and called directly by Christ to the position. There ain't nobody alive today that fulfills those requirements. So if someone tells you or someone else that they're an apostle, they'll probably have a very large church. They'll drive a fancy car quite often. But they're lying. And we need to know that. Because... Don't ask questions. I was just... <laughs> Give me one second. I'm not, that's why I wanted to do it this way. But understand today that there are no apostles. And we need to be aware of that because there are wolves in sheep's clothing out there. Now what about Paul? That's an awesome question. Paul was not with Jesus from the beginning, was he? He was trying to kill the followers of Christ after Christ resurrected and ascended. Why do we consider Paul an apostle? 
He was a liar. Rip all those out of the Bible. Paul is a unique apostle is how I would answer your question. He is a unique apostle because of his direct commission from Christ, the way he came to faith through Christ on the Damascus Road, how he was ministered to by Christ over the three years in the wilderness, um, and Christ's commission to send him out as an apostle uh, with a focus on the Gentiles. So he is an apostle, no doubt, but he's a different type of apostle, which is why he's always talking through his letters about how I, too, am an apostle. You know, as you read through his epistles, he makes that reference over and over again. Uh, in his case, though, he's the exception to the rule because of a direct um, affirmation of that exception by Christ. So that's why Paul qualifies. You might ask, well, what about Matthias? He met two of the requirements, but did Christ really directly call him to be an apostle? That whole thing with casting lots here, yes. You have the Psalms talking about how Judas would betray and they need to replace him. That's Christ speaking through his word. They brought men up who met the requirements of being with him, being a witness of the resurrection, and then they cast lots to discern which one it was. They did not have the Holy Spirit at that time to discern God's will. So they often used a practice of discerning by lots. We no longer do that because we have the Holy Spirit. You can't just roll the dice and say, God, what do you want me to do? But that's how Matthias fits in, is through fulfillment of Scripture, um, meeting the requirements, being, being put in place by Christ through his word and affirmation through lots. But both Paul and Messiah, Matthias, you can see, are a little trickier. They meet the requirements. Um, but today there are none. Does that answer your question satisfactorily about Paul? Yes. Okay. The other thing, this one gets a little bit closer to home. Catholicism, Roman Catholic Church. That's the bulk of the people that live around us. No? Um, somebody, Roman Catholic background. Catholic Church has a unique view on Mary, don't they? The veneration of Mary. Uh, there's even this issue of uh, co-redemptrix. She plays a, a role in the salvific, redemptive work of Christ. Who is hanging out with the disciples in this, in this passage? The eleven apostles and the other disciples and some of the women. Do you notice who one of the women was here? Mary. Jesus' mom. Mary, I cannot wait to meet Mary. What an amazing woman. Well, the mom of Jesus. You know, you don't talk bad about any man's mama. You don't want to talk bad about Jesus' mama, so I'm treading carefully here. But, notice she was gathered with the other disciples and praying. She was a disciple. She needed a Savior, just like we do. Her son happened to be her Savior. You do not have to pray through Mary to get to Jesus at all. Now, Catholic Church also teaches that Mary was an eternal virgin, never had any other children. Who else was here with them? Yeah. Lots of He had brothers, and the footnote will say, and sisters. Um, you understand that one of these books in the Bible was written by a brother? So, why do I share this? Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had other kids. They were half-brothers and sisters because they had a different daddy. But, when we come across so many people who are taught to venerate Mary, that you can come to Christ only working through Mary, that this is a woman who ascended, didn't die like a normal person, we need to be careful. Because I'm not bashing the Catholic Church, I'm, just, I'm presenting a biblical truth because of this. There are a lot of people that can get easily dissuaded by false teaching. I'm no Martin Luther, I ain't taking on the behemoth of the Catholic Church. I'm not saying there are no Christians, regenerate Christians in the Catholic Church. What I am saying 
is that often to become regenerate in the Catholic Church, you need to work your way around some serious false doctrine, no? And I share this with you because as we go out into the world and interact in this area with so many Catholic people, we have a wonderful opportunity to present to them sound and solid biblical truth. To free them, there are so many people, I know of older, older, much older, people, Catholic people, who have this fear that when they die, will I really get to go to heaven? Did I go do good enough? Why live with that burden? You don't have to. So what I'm saying is that we need to be aware of some teachings that are not true based off of biblical truth. So as we interact in the world with these people, we can reveal to them truth. Now this issue with the Catholic Church, it ruffles me the wrong way because I'm thinking, well, am I bad-mouthing some? I'm not bad-mouthing anybody. I don't want you to be uncomfortable with it, but I want you to realize the Protestant Church has much false teaching. You know? This is my Bible, and this is my Coca-Cola, and I sell out the end. Well, I'll leave him for another time. What I'm saying is, as we interact in the lost world, we need to communicate the truth. And let's never assume, Protestant or Catholic or whatever, that someone is, is saved. Okay? Let's interact with them lovingly. Don't ask a person, are you a Christian? Because 85% will say, uh-huh. And you think you just check it off, see you in heaven. Ask them to tell you about it. But as we do, and even those who really are, let's help them to understand God's truth through Scripture. So when someone comes to you and says, hey, I go to the church of the apostle so-and-so, you might mention something about the fact there are no more apostles today. Because that's not going to be a sound, solid Bible teaching church. When someone tells you, you know, they're working their way through the rosary and they're telling you how they're praying to the Virgin Mary, you know, great conversation to be had. Well, you ask them a simple question. Why do you, why do you pray to Mary? You know, you know what I answer? I get a lot to that. I don't know. Aren't you supposed to? What freedom to know you can speak directly to God that He listens to you at all times. Just some, some truth on the side to chew on and do what you want with. Push back on it. Think about it. If it rubs you the wrong way and you think I'm off base, maybe I am. We'll delve deeper into the scriptures. But I put those out there as a side note because they're sitting here in the text. Jesus had brothers and sisters and it's okay. Mary had a Savior. The same one we did. He happened to be her son. How stinking amazing that is. You know, you want to do something wonderful for God? How about give birth to His Son who was fully God? I mean, she is a woman who should be exalted. That's quite a ministry that God called her to, no? But yet she's just a woman who is fallen and saved only by grace through faith. I'll stop on that. Next week we're going to get into the coming of the Holy Spirit. This week I want you to remember these four truths. As we, as we go about the calling God put on our life, we need to be about obedience, we need to be about prayer, and we need to be about fellowship. And one of the primary ways we're able to go about them in a way pleasing to God and live a life in this lost world that's fully pleasing to God is to know the truth that He is in control at all times, in every way, with no exceptions. So when things don't seem like they're going well, know that God's in control. When things are going in ways that seem awesome, know that God is in control. And as you know that truth, at all times and in all ways, you can rejoice and give praise to God. Let's pray. Father God, we, just, we do praise you. We thank you. We lift up your holy name. What an awesome, awesome truth to know that you, who created all, love us, that you sustain us, that you keep us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, because of the work you did through Christ and the truth of the fact that you opened our eyes to know who he is and to profess our faith and walk in obedience to him. 
Yet, God, we know we fall short, but yet we rejoice again that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. We fall before you and ask you to forgive us and equip us more fully to do the works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Not for our glory, but for yours. I pray that we would take seriously this task that you have called us to, to go out into the world and make known the truth of Christ. That you would help us reveal to people the, the incredible, loving, merciful God whose desires that none should be lost, but all should be saved. And I pray we would do that as a collective group of people who are kept hot in your love and who go out into this lost world and live lives for all to see. I pray that you would allow us to develop relationships with one another more fully based on a mutual love and trust where we can properly care for and and encourage one another. And I pray, God, that you would help us day by day focus more fully on you. God, I thank you that you've invited us into this work of yours. But I thank you so much more so that you saved us. That at the cost of your very own son, you came down, you became one of us to the point of death on a cross to take the wrath that was due us upon yourself and put the righteousness that was yours, Jesus Christ, upon us. And for that, the word thank you just is completely unsatisfactory, but yet we cry it out, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Jesus, it is in your precious and holy name that we pray all these things. Amen.